when did I choose to do this? Why do I have to do this? Right. I could stop and it would be so much nicer. <laughs> I'd earn money. It would be really nice. And I remember I was going across London Bridge on a bus and I realised that I could stop and I realised that I could continue. And instead of looking back to somewhere deep in the past, looking for the point where I decided this was what I was going to do, I was going to right now decide. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Sam. Hello, Sam. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good, I'm good, and it's it's always weird to sort of do that that hello after we've already been talking. But yeah. I I made it even weirder then because I kind of did a kind of expressive <laughs> sort of uh, shape with my hands. Welcome my to my world. Yeah, exactly. It was very dramatic. <laughs> um, and I think you're, you're you're the first guest to have got that kind of a welcome. So I guess that makes you I'm very I'm very flattered. <laughs> Thank you for the uh, expansive warm welcome. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Uh, we know each other through Martin Zoltzolstwick. Martin is another podcaster who I do our weekly uh, terrible idea show uh, with. We're award winning award winning terrible, terrible idea. idea. Um, we do a, a show called Song by Song, where we're listening to all of Tom Waits's music in chronological order week by week episode by episode song by song we have a little listen we have a chat we listen to some other music that maybe shares a similar theme or a a similar lyric or some musicians or just we think is is interesting to compare and through doing that show i became involved in some of the podcaster support group which you're on and i listened to some of your shows and then we had you on as guests you and jen came on to That's talk right. about some episodes from I forget what it was small channel or oh, foreign affairs um wow i should know yeah this i should too, know that as well I, I, i'm not I'm not sure. I mean, it, there was four songs, and one of them there was Shotgun Blues. I'm, there was yeah, there was the twenty nine dollars. Right, right. And can, is it Kentucky Avenue? Kentucky was, Avenue. That yeah, was yeah, my yeah. favorite of those four. I liked three of them a lot. One of them not at all. Yeah, we had a um, we had a discussion about that. <laughs> yeah, and well, but that's that's one of the things I enjoy about song by song. Actually, is that your guests come on and they may or may not be as passionate about Tom Waits as you guys. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But that won't necessarily mean that they'd like every one of his songs either. So (laughs) there's a lot of like criticism as well as love going on around. And that's a great combination. I think that criticism is really important in terms of art. And I don't think criticism needs to include condemnation as well. Even it can include condemnation, but you know, the ability to look at something and analyze it or at least analyze your enjoyment of it is i think really really useful and and valuable because you there are all sorts of things that you can say are not objectively good but you can say have objective value or creative creative value but if i hate citizen kane and i love the powerpuff girls movie then that love i think is more powerful than uh, than any canon of of filmmaking and I also think that when you're talking about those kind of things with other people, 
to have differences of opinion and to maybe inspire in your audience uh, an enthusiasm that they didn't really have full context for or a hatred where they disagree with something that you say and they realise that actually this is the worst song that they've heard on this album, then that spurs them on into their own little journey towards... uh, The way we describe the show is it's like a book club and I think that very much people come together, you hear people say things that you agree with, you hear people say things you disagree with and then that solidifies your impression and your thoughts about it. Right, And, and, and text anyway they're not they don't have one meaning no like and that's one of the things like you know 10 people listen to the same song they're going to have 10 different reactions and those reactions are going to come from who they are what was happening that day yeah. when they listen to it all sorts of different things and I mean I, I you know I, I was really pleased to have an opportunity to come on Song by Song because I've been listening to it kind of from the start you've been a I, big supporter I of that so it. we appreciate that I do love it and, and I mean I'm not up to date with it currently but that's okay because I quite like binging it I, I, that's kind of my yeah. the way I like to do it you know you're being humorous when you kind of describe it as a bad idea like, I <laughs> I, I, I'm not. It's I a mean, terrible I, idea. I know what you mean too. I know what you mean too. It's it's it's. You have to do it now. Yeah. It's one of those ones where it's like, oh, it's a good idea, but it actually means loads and loads of work for a number of years, maybe the rest of your life. No, 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 no. It's not going to be the rest of my life. We're about hundred episodes in. We reckon it'll be about two hundred and fifty. So we're we're on our way. But you're absolutely right. We've committed to doing something, and I think if we don't finish it, then we'd never forgive ourselves or each other. Or but that's good. Like I yeah. think that's a good thing to as a creator to put yourself into that situation. I once made uh, a bad idea podcast, yeah. uh, which is like not good. Like it's a bad, bad idea. Podcast. Okay, sure. Go on, give first, us a breakdown. Give well, it was the first idea. podcast I ever made, and it was called well, the first podcast I made independently on my own, mm-hmm. and it was called Four Days in a Room. Right. And the idea was I got together with my two uh, childhood friends, like school friends, in a room for four days, right. and we took out different kind of topics from a hat and and talked for for four days constantly, and right. then I released it weekly okay. over a couple of years. Now, the problem is, first of all, we didn't even stay in the room, so that's a mistake for okay. a start. Right. Like, so you've got that kind of thing that you have to balance out, like, do we actually do every single song, or are there ways that we can not do songs, and does that mean live albums, and yeah. does that mean... So it's all of that stuff, but we definitely broke our own rules, but also... Don't get together with your two childhood friends and lock yourself in a room for four days and think that you're going to have good, interesting conversations. <laughs> you're going to regress back to being 15. Yeah. And that's not pleasant for no, anyone to no, experience, no, particularly me, whilst editing for two years. Like, I was like, oh my God. Like, at the end of that two years, that's why Getting Better Acquainted happened, because I was like, I want to hear myself be different. Right, okay. <laughs> I want to hear myself be eloquent or, like, interesting. Um, and also, I wanted to learn to listen better, because I hadn't done that for those four days. That's really. a tricky thing as well. That's a that's a any, doing any of these shows requires honing not just the way you speak but also the way that you hear what other people are saying and that's right. that's a tricky that's a tricky skill it is and and also like I think the other thing about it is that the people I made that podcast with they didn't want to really make a podcast they didn't really no. like they weren't really behind it that's always a big mistake but what I realised afterwards as well is that they they weren't interested in. Uh, making it but they did still have a lot of opinions about the edit but they didn't want to do any of the editing so it was like the worst 
uh, worst. I mean, like it's like a, it's, it's almost like a, a you know yeah. It's basically a, a lesson in how not to podcast, which I've benefited from. Sure, yeah, yeah. But I mean, only some of it remains uh, available to the on the internet. Like I've I've certainly got rid of most of it, leaving only some stuff just as a kind of historical re- yeah, sure. reference. But I mean, because I don't believe in shutting the doors behind you. Like I want all of my creative projects to kind of have a kind of chemical trail behind me yeah but i don't necessarily stand by any of them i really Uh, enjoy going (laughs) back to to things looking at people's early work and trying to understand not just the thing that they broke through on or maybe the, the thing that's considered their masterpiece but where you can spot the early seeds of those things you know the the flirting with the idea of something that it brought someone to huge success or the initial thread that isn't possibly fully committed to in in an artistic thing that is then fully blossoms when they gain the confidence to turn it into their magnum opus right. or whatever it is like, i think it's a uh, i think it's a i think it's illuminating and also really reassuring right. for yourself when you're you're trying to put together your own things and yes give yourself some sense of hope for the yeah. future as well the people that you love made shit stuff mm. um, and that's that is very inspiring yeah um and you know like that's one of the things i think song by song does kind of explore like you're looking but by going through every single song from the beginning to the end you see a development of yeah. an artistic career and also a, an artistic voice or voices because yeah. tom waits has got a few one or two and also his <laughs> repetitions as well right. like the way that the places where uh, things, phrases or, or musical riffs or habits that he has that are, while you're listening to them over and over again, can actually become quite irritating sometimes. <laughs> and others that beca- t- go from irritating into something that's really beautiful. And, right. and I think confidence is the, um, the, the thing that, confidence is the thing that I aspire to. <laughs> and confidence is the thing that I think is hardest to work at and build i i do i do the the song by song podcast but that's not my job my no. my job whenever it can be anyway is um is acting mostly in theater and being confident in your work in that world is genuinely i think the only thing that separates people who are really good and people who are not so good uh, there's lots of technical things about the body and the voice and understanding text and doing the homework and you know putting in details but you can tell when someone walks across a room, picks up a glass and drinks, whether they feel confident and at home and relaxed in the, sp- in the space, in the room that they're meant to be inhabiting or the theatre they're actually inhabiting. Right. And when they don't. And that's a tough thing to fake. But then, I mean, what about... I mean, because I, 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 mean, I have a love of theatre too. I, I actually studied uh, theatre at uni and, and it's kind of... That's my background. Sure. And you're an actor. You're like a... You, you do it effectively. I've come to that means I don't understand it. Well, I've come, I've come to realize. Well, I'm I, I'm a because I on the, on the family tree I act. I mean, I, I so I I, yeah. I I do act and I have acted. But what I've come to realize is what I do well is I'm less of an actor and more of a believer. Like I can yeah. believe in a story really compellingly, and that might be a true story, it might be a fictional story, but like it comes from me being me, yeah, rather than me being someone else. Um, whereas you know the actors I really admire are able to be other people. Sure. Um, but when you're talking about confidence into context of acting, like 
sometimes you you won't be playing a confident person. No. So it's like it's this interesting line, isn't it, of like confidently being unconfident to a like to the audience like you convincingly believe believable as an unconfident character for example or like yeah it could be that because i mean the the thing that we respond to as an audience isn't necessarily somebody coming in and picking up a glass and being and drinking it kind of confidently because they might they might be showing other elements their character no no no, of course and 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 that example is reductive but at the same time i think it's uh, important um the thing about uh, it being impossible to prove a negative right. it's also very difficult right. to play a negative right i, I don't know if you've uh, i mean something you can do yourself if you've ever tried to pretend to trip or right. uh, pretend to like drop something accidentally right. it's really difficult it's really to do yeah, yeah, not sure. convincingly at least yeah. because being asked to do something badly you immediately want to you're trapped between really working hard at setting up how to accurately do the wrong thing or trying to do the right thing and managing to dependably fail to do it confidence is possibly not a complete image of or or rather confidence in terms of character and and personality might seem like a, a contradiction, you know, how do you confidently play someone who lacks confidence? But you can confidently play uh, your fear of something. You can confidently play right, right, uh, right, your right. awareness of the space you're in. And you might be able to feed off your own fear of performance, which right. I often do. But, That's um, what I do too. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you, it's about being... Confidence maybe is the wrong word then, but being clear, being no, precise, being No, I think it's a good definite. word, though. I mean, it's an interesting word to use. And, it, and you know, I'm, I'm glad we kind of teased it out a little bit, but I think it's a still an interesting kind of way of thinking of acting. Mm. like and, and Or just being in the world, like... Like what I've come to to find as a as a host of events is that I guess it is a kind of confidence. I'm comfortable with being awkward now, yeah. and I used to just be awkward. So I used to be somebody who would stand up and like make the whole room feel like, oh my god, is he is yeah, he okay? Absolutely. And now I'm a, I'm someone who, who who can inspire people going, oh yeah, I'm awkward too. Mm-hmm. And and that's a weird like it's only a small change. Yeah. But it's a massive change. And it, it, it's, it's the flick of a switch. And right. to get someone to do it when they're not ready to do it is totally impossible in the same way that so much about, I think, about performance is impossible. I, I suffer from a, a, a tremor, which is known as a benign essential tremor, which apparently everyone has. Right. And the people who have the steadiest hands have the smallest tremor. But it's still something that, you know, happens. It's the muscles correcting. And when I get a rush of adrenaline, my hand shakes. And uh, it's most pronounced in the first five minutes of the first time I do something. So the first time I read a script in front of other people, my hands shake. First time I get up and do, uh, you know, the first time in rehearsals, you get up and do something, my hands shake. First performance, often my hands will shake for the first five minutes of something. And it's a really fucking irritating thing. But my confidence, my, my, my ability to go, that's what happens. I acknowledge that. I may not. I may try and root around it, or I may just try and go. That's going to happen. Just be aware of it. It happens. And nothing. Ter- nothing to worry about. Right. Um, and occasionally point it out. You know, to say if you're standing up in front of a group of people, "Hi, I'm Sam. We're going to be talking about this, that, and the other thing." You may notice my hand is shaking. That's because my hand shakes. Here we go. <laughs> right. That doesn't need to be. It, but but these are all these are all like you know little 
no, no, no. But it's another thing that confidence might also encompass when we're using that word is it might also be about being kind of in the moment, if you like, which is a bit of a wanky phrase in some ways. Yeah. Like everybody kind of goes, oh, God, somebody's talking about <laughs> in the moment. But like it, it definitely in, in performance, it's something that I wrestle with a lot. Like when I'm performing musically, my problem is that that as soon as I start being aware of myself, I fuck up. So like I'll like play a really good bit of guitar and then I'll be like, oh, I've just played a really good yeah, bit of yeah. guitar. And as soon as I think that, I'll fuck up the next Yeah, you're score. going backwards. You're going you know? into the past, yeah. And, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll be... Uh, you know, I've forgotten how to play chords full stop on stage before. You know, I've had those kind of... I've never died on stage like a, in like a comedy or acting moment, but I've died on stage a lot of times as a musician. Technically, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, on my own, as a solo musician, a band is a different kettle of fish, and I, I love that. Um, but when you're on your own on stage, like, playing an instrument, like, yeah, I, I'm never able to create what I can do in my bedroom. No. Uh, even if I'm videoing it, in my bedroom to try and do it to show the world that I can actually do that. I can never do it. No. Uh, as well as when no one's listening. It's a tricky thing. But but being being aware of it and acknowledging that and again, you know, not trying to run away from those kind of right. truths about, you know, who you are and <laughs> what your habits are and what the things to focus on are. Like you just got to you've got to deal with your own shit, man. Right. No, that's true. <laughs> and so, so the second question I ask everyone, I guess you've yeah. kind of answered is, sure. is what do you do now? And you've kind of, you've, you've sort of answered that, but what would you say if I asked you that? Well, I say that I'm uh, an actor musician. Uh, I work mostly in theatre. I pretend to be other people. I play the accordion and the piano and the tuba and the euphonium and the trumpet and anything else they'll pay me to do. Um, <laughs> and because that's a... Um, a difficult thing to make happen every day of the week. I also do a fair bit of uh, production editing uh, for some publications uh, when I can find the work. And when I can't find that work or the other work, um, I spend a lot of time looking after my daughter, who's right. about three years old, nearly four. Um, uh, so there's still lots of time at home, another year or so of her having three quarters of the day where she's not in preschool. So I've got a bit of time coming up that I'm not working, and so I'm going to have two or three weeks of hanging out with her and going places after school and meeting up with friends and going swimming and that kind of thing. So nice. those are the three strands, really. Offices, theatres, and uh, <laughs> my own house with a tiny person. Right. And as, a, as a, an actor who also plays instruments, I guess that's quite a, a useful double skill, that yeah. there will be quite a lot of plays where it's quite useful to have somebody be able to play an instrument as part of that play. There's a, um, there's a whole world of actor-musician right. work, which initially was created by... I mean, it's been used in all sorts of places, but um, was brought to prominence, I guess, by uh, a guy called Bob Carlton, who created Return to the Forbidden Planet. Right, so that's um, what I was actually thinking of. Really? Head, yeah. Well, I've worked with Bob a bunch. He used to be the artistic director of the Queen's Theatre in Hornchurch, just outside London, or edge of London. Um, and I've done probably like... 15, 18 shows, something like that there, and at least 10 of those were with Bob directing. I owe a great debt of gratitude to to him for giving me that sort of rep theatre basis for an awful lot of my work, letting me be in a whole bunch of different plays with different styles, playing different characters outside of my typical playing style, and making that justifiable... Well, what's an example? I, I was in two plays back to back. We did um, uh, The Great Gatsby and Godspell uh, and needed someone who could be two different characters in both of those plays because, and you also need people who can play the piano and right. uh, play a bit of accordion and play a bit of trumpet. So 
you get me and you sort of like squint a little bit around some of the casting and so those instruments definitely open doors and give me opportunities to right. you know do things there's no shortage of people who can do the acting stuff that I do right. but to do the acting stuff and that instrument and that singing and that accordion and that blah 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 etc same way that you would imagine someone with circus skills would be very useful exactly. and very employable yeah, and you yeah. might go they can do that acrobatic stuff, so I don't care so much that they're not 100% exactly the character as written. You know, you have to use... The audience has to use their imagination slightly more. Right. I mean, I remember that. Like, when I saw Return to Forbidden Planet growing up as a teenager, I remember seeing it and going, right, okay, like, I might play a bit of guitar and I might do a bit of acting, but these people can do every single possible thing. It's like... In itself, that was part of the spectacle yeah. uh, and the theatre and the drama of what you were watching. You were going like, that person can't have any more skills. Oh, they've got yeah. another skill. And I think it's the same thing you see in uh, in a lot of, especially action blockbusters, right. where you go, Tom Cruise, I think he's a good actor, and he can also do all of those stunts. Um, Keanu Reeves isn't the greatest actor, but they did all of that martial arts stuff in The Matrix, and you go, "That's those are those are extraordinary things." That that is spectacle in and of itself. I think, and that has added value. I think Keanu has got his own vibe yeah. going on, though. I mean, that's the thing with acting; it's a complicated thing, isn't it? Because it's like some people are just great actors, and some people have got just a great presence or a great energy mm. that is useful in some things and terrible in others. Like, I'm not denying that Keanu yeah, yeah, sure. is not terrible in some things. <laughs> But he's great in some things. And, like, when he's used right, like, that's the job of directors and uh, producers to to pick the right roles for actors to inhabit, you know. I always think, you know, whilst it's easy to kind of see a a bad performance and go, oh, it's a bad performance, and don't get me wrong, I do that all the time. Sure. Uh, You've come to see my plays. Yeah, but... Well, no, no, but it's, it's, it's... it's never just the actor. It's hardly ever just the actor. And quite often in film, certainly, mm. the actor might have done an amazing performance, but it wasn't captured. Yeah, or wasn't you know, edited the wasn't wrong edited, ta- you different know, exactly. It's, it's that people do say that the biggest job um, in getting a good performance is getting the right person in the right role. Um, uh, and that's obvious when you see people who deliver incredible performances on stage and in, on screen, and the same people are dull as ditch water and other things right. just not not everything not every hole is the same shape and you need to find the right block to drop in the right hole right. is that a good metaphor I'm not sure I think it works <laughs> it works for this purpose I think like, well that's what I always think it's like the the actor is kind of like the the, the person that everything kind of often gets directed at any criticism mm. and actually the writer or the director uh, or the producer or the casting director are often the people that some of that at least some of that should be le- leveled at maybe but also the actors get an awful lot of the praise and i think that's a lot of the true time, too that's definitely true. a lot of people who ignore the i saw i saw a fantastic that's definitely thing true the other day we went to see penn and teller do their live show and at the and they're incredible and they're funny and they're charming and there's incredible magic and there's also great stage presence and and at the end of the show, they said, that's our show. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, it's important to know that this is a two-man show that involves the work of hundreds of people. Right. Uh, the people who prepare our show going out on tour, the people who help us put together um, the act in uh, Vegas, the people who uh, receive us into the theatres, the stage manager, the lighting operation, the sound designer, the people who tear your tickets. This is uh, the moment where you can give a round of applause to acknowledge their work in making this two-man show look 
as good as it does. And then they finished and they ran out of the auditorium and they waited outside the theatre to say hello to anyone who was coming out. And that's after a two-hour, you know, marathon yeah, physical. And, and I think that that's practice. a really... Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a really important thing for everyone, both watching and being part of entertainment of any kind, that it's all well and good to lord the actor or the cinematographer or if you're talking about other things the um the the writer or the researcher or the artist of this that another thing um but there are lots of people who go into making that theater show that film that book whatever it is look as good as it does absolutely and choosing paper stock is as important because if you're irritated by the feel of a cover all the way through reading a 300 page novel you're going to take against that novel right so i think that those things well nothing makes you i mean yeah absolutely nothing makes you feel like the acknowledgement of that is important as much as trying to do things independently because when I because sure. I often find myself trying to do so many different things that I can't do mm. like that and I'm like if only I had uh, someone to choose the right paper stock exactly you know then then everything would go right but also I mean it's yeah I mean that's definitely true you're right they, they get the uh, actors get the criticism unfairly sometimes but they also get the praise unfairly yeah. sometimes yeah I mean making the family tree we have that problem as well because like whilst we present it as it being me that makes it because that's the world of the story yeah uh, Jen is com- continually erased by everyone like even we you know even collaborators we get emails just direct you know just addressed to me and partly that's because of you know complicated things about patriarchy or whatever. exactly but, yeah, but, yeah. But, but lots of that is just to do with the fact that she doesn't speak you don't see her so you don't know that she's putting the work in and she like she's not the only one doing it as well like the, like you say there's other people who never get seen at all who, who have put amazing work into that we were um, we were sold I think that this a lot of this goes back to the uh, to the 60s with the the creation of uh, auteur theory right. by the, the French um Critics like the you know, Cahiers de Cinema and, right. and Luke, who was that? Francois Truffaut. Truffaut and uh, uh, God. I keep saying Luke Besson. Want to say not... Luke Besson? No, no, it's uh, uh, Godard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they were watching all of the uh, Hollywood cinema from the nineteen forties, fifties, and sixties, and then analysing it and going, "Oh, Hitchcock directed all of these films. Here are the through line. Here are the themes that keep coming up. He's clearly the author of this work. John Ford is the author of that right, work. Right, right. And from there, we had like a, a cult of personality and there's lots of films that do i mean i don't i don't dismiss it but it's not always true the studio system that was producing these films churned it out the director had it in his hands for five weeks and then handed it off to the editor and even when it is true hmm. that the uh, that the director has a kind of authorship of the work that doesn't mean that they made it no like that cinematographers are a, a yeah. huge deal i think that a lot of um David Finch, you'd hear documentaries where David Fincher talking himself or people talking about David Fincher's early work. And it's clear that his love and his reverence for the cinematographers he was working with meant that he gave them such freedom and such scope to compose the frame and to create, and production designs to create the image that you see, that a great deal of what is good about, say, Alien 3, what's another good example... I can't think of anything, but but what, what's great about his early work is very much due to the people he is employing and giving space to. Right, and that's important, and I think that's like I I think it's as someone who makes different kinds of work. Sometimes you make something and it's just you. Like I write stuff, and like if you if you're if you're a prose writer, you, you can't. It's, it's not a collaborative medium, or mm. it, rarely is it a collaborative medium. Yeah. But like, why I I never understand why people would 
working collaborative mediums and then not embrace the excitingness of collaborating like one of the things i'm uh, we're enjoying about making the family tree is that the actors are improvising it so we don't know what they're going to do so it's so exciting like collaboration can be so exciting like you say like why would you micromanage a cinematographer rather than finding a great cinematographer and allowing them to do it but then you know any kind of rule the opposite will also no, be true. Sure. In the arts, like that, you know, there'll, there'll be great work made by micromanagers and great work made yeah. by collaborators. I don't want to make any kind of exact science. No, and and it's it's not a universal thing. I think that a lot of it can be to do with in theatre. I uh, work with people who are actors, directors, producers, stage managers, uh, musical directors, fight directors, choreographers, right. um, all sorts of different roles. The lines between some of those roles are quite flexible. I have done shows where the musical director will say something like this, play it in G, kind of a, uh, a, a an elderly feel, and then they'll leave me to mess around on the piano and I'll give them something and they'll go, great. I've worked with other musical directors who say, I want this note, you're missing that accidental. And you could say, that's a micromanager and, and, uh, and yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's also, not, well, but there's also a sense that anyway. the difference between me and the musical director is only in the job titles that we have been assigned. And in one case I can think of, that MD was a fantastic actor, and I can busk my way through, you know, arranging a song. We could have swapped jobs. And so people's ownership of of their work, but also their legitimacy as uh, an employable person, comes down to what their job title is and what information and what part of the production they control. A stage manager might want to hold on very tightly to all sorts of jobs because if those jobs disappear from them, then they sort of don't have much to do and maybe they don't have a justification for being in the room in the same way a director might want to micromanage. And when you have less an experience or a qualification or a concrete skill set, and all of this stuff is really amorphous you know right. i could direct a show i could stage manage a show i could act in but a show is, i mean this is the same with music as well right mm. because there's like there's brilliant technical performers and then there's people who are really good in other ways yes and like i wouldn't want you know punk like well there's loads of really great technical performers in punk but a lot of the initial punk kind of movement was like people just picking up guitars and fucking trying things out um and i wouldn't and that can create amazing stuff but i wouldn't say like there's no point in going and learning classical music for all of your life and writing a beautiful piece of kind of piano music that uh, fits loads of intelligent rules that i don't understand sure that's that's equally they're, they're equally potentially good and sometimes it's confusing i think with the arts because to say they're equally good doesn't mean that equal effort goes into them. That's, no, a, that's another no, thing that's that can true. be confusing. Like, you can write a brilliant thing or act a brilliant piece, like, in, in the moment. It can literally be five minutes. Mm. And, like, you've created something, it's brilliant, it's timeless, everyone loves it. Or you can spend, like, you know, three years to create five minutes that's the same quality but in a different way. Yeah. And you couldn't have made it if you hadn't spent those three years. Exactly. But at the same time, like, it's hard for people to... Kind of see those two things and say, yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're they're the same amount, yeah, of, like the same amount of goodness, but they can be, they yeah, absolutely whatever goodness or badness means. <laughs> goodness, it's 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 there's false equivalency in in all sorts right. of things which seem like they are really equivalent, right? Um, and I think you, uh, I I want to uh, as much as you I can try and give respect to 
the people who are doing jobs that maybe I'm not infused by, maybe I wouldn't want to do myself, maybe I don't even fully understand what goes into them. But right. they've been given the the respect of whoever signs the checks and whoever employs you or re-employs you even more to go, this person is important to have in the room and I hope that they would give me that respect as well. And you try right. and earn that, but also you try and give that respect. Right, absolutely. And I should say, our, our uh, extra collaborator, it sounds like, uh, is uh, there sounds like there's a, a slight tantrum going on maybe in the upstairs flat uh, from small, the small child small who lives child. there. Hey, listen. Uh, which is kind of like, it's kind of, well, it's kind of... Uh, Home away from home, right? Well, my my, my daughter throws fewer <laughs> fewer tantrums. There's less uh, there's less crying these days. But um, no, it's uh, I actually find uh, the sound of a a crying child um, not not pleasant, but definitely uh, charming's the wrong word as well. But there's definitely a, a a sense of going. I know what that's like. I understand that. That's really difficult. Also, not my fucking problem. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you go. <laughs> it's really. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, like, it's interesting. I used to work with the under fives, and so I've heard a lot of crying ch- children mm-hmm. as well. And, like, I I almost, there's something, I find something really beautiful about kids having tantrums. Because you, you never feel as, un, like, uncomplicatedly emotions as that age. No. Like, like when, you're, when you're happy, you're really happy. But when you're sad, you're really sad. And it's like, I'm like, I can't do that anymore. I can't just allow you myself should, to Dave, do that. You should, Dave. You should. When don't you don't so. find the exact brand of butter that you want in the supermarket, you should fall to the floor, slam your fists <laughs> right, on it, right, and right, right. scream. Right. Well, I know, but, you know, some days I'm doing that in my head. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of days I'm doing that in my head. Like, which came first for you, music or acting, or did they come around the same time? I started my career very early. I was a, uh, an opera singer. I was a boy soprano. Um, so I joined a, a choir when I was about eight years old called Finchley Children's Music Group. And they were a, a children's choir. They uh, it was a singing class, but they were also a pool of singers, ch- child singers, uh, that various uh, casting directors, various theatre shows, but also opera producers would pull upon. Uh, there's lots of parts that require a uh, a boy singer, and the only way of sub- substituting that really is to get a, a female singer, and that changes what you're presenting massively on stage. So. Uh, uh, as part of Finchley Children's Music Group, I started at the top. Um, <laughs> I uh, I was a small part. I was second curlew in a production of uh, Noah's Flood, Noah's Flood uh, by Benjamin Britten at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow! Just you know, just a small venue. You know, get my uh, get my feet wet. And then I was cast as Portly the Baby Otter in uh, the National Theatre production of Wind in the Willows. Oh, I, was, wow. I was one of three Portleys, so uh, a lot of people saw that show uh, uh, from our generation anyway, at a formative age. There's only a one in three chance that I was there, but I was that. <laughs> I was a carol singing hedgehog. I got to act with David Bamber and Richard Briers wow. on the Olivier stage at the National Theatre. I continued. I did some, some stuff at, at the Royal Festival Hall, I did a Spanish piece called Master Peter's Puppet Show that I had to learn phonetically, syllable by syllable, note by note. Uh, and then I got to go off to Venice for five weeks and sing in uh, The Turn of the Screw, again by Britain. The, uh, uh, it's Gra- uh, Graham Green. No, not Graham Green. Um, 
I'm Good. Not, okay. I'm not, that, I'm, not, I'm not that knowledgeable. I was 11 years I'm, old at the time. You have to forgive me for forgetting. <coughs> no, no, no. It's based on a Henry James. There, it's sh- oh, yeah. based on a Henry James short ah, story. The turn, of, turn of the screw. Oh, screw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually did know that. But so I got, did I. I but, but my mind went like I was like, "This is about opera." Yeah. I, I can't answer it. Everybody actually, freeze. Nobody moves. Something I knew. My vision's based on movement. Um, <laughs> the um, and so I got to do that and loads of incredible uh, experiences. I got to record it at Snake Maltings. There's a record of me singing uh, the turn of the screw as a boy soprano that's still kicking around so i began my career very much from the point of view that i could sing i had i, I, I won't i won't lack flattery for myself i had an incredible singing voice yeah uh, i had perfect pitch and i could sing whatever you asked me to sing it was fine and did you i mean did you want to sing like was that like was that like was it did it come from you or did someone hear you and suggest it or yeah because when people would like think of child performers there's yeah. the whole kind of spectrum of did they want to do it did they yeah not yeah want to do absolutely it? It comes up it's a difficult thing to to pin down my parents are both classical musicians right so um, it was there in your household music regardless. was always around although actually thinking about the music that I listened to when I was growing up I listened to a lot more Beatles they might be giants and the Muppet Show than I did <laughs> classical music it was always around my dad was constantly practicing the clarinet i've heard the weber clarinet concerto more times than i can possibly tell you um but i don't think i really i don't think i really knew whether it was something that i wanted to do until i got much further down the road i did uh, youth theater i when i went to university i did amateur dramatic stuff um, there were some people who were really enthusiastic and persuaded me to audition for drama schools. It wasn't until I was nearly at the end of my... Fir- in fact, at the, between my first and second year at drama school that I suddenly started to question, why am I doing this? This is really hard. I mean, you know, it's it's not it's it's not it's not hard in the same way that you know back breaking manual labour is hard. Right. But there's an awful lot of stuff where you're forced to acknowledge the habits in yourself, the tendencies in yourself, what your weaknesses are, and not to necessarily eliminate them, but to include in the spectrum of what you can do, including them or not including them. And that's both technical. um, I have a quite whistly S, so I had to work quite hard at eliminating that, but also uh, physical habits and emotional habits. I tend towards a certain high energy kind of performance and to not always have to do that is important and that means you start questioning how you approach all sorts of things in life so it can be and, and I was I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I really was looking back with exactly that question and going when when did I choose to do this why do I have to do this right I could stop and it would be so much <laughs> I'd earn money it would be really nice and I remember I was going across London Bridge on a bus and I realised that I could stop and I realised that I could continue and instead of looking back to somewhere deep in the past whether it was in my childhood or at university or when I decided to start auditioning looking for the point where I decided this was what I was going to do I was going to right now decide whether it was what I wanted to do or not Um, and obviously people do that in all sorts of directions people quit their um, you know well-paid accountancy or legal jobs and go I want to become a painter or a poet and I'm going to throw it all up and people go oh my god you're mad how can you throw away you sell your house but that's the moment where people go I it's all in the past what do I want to do now yeah yeah, yeah. and I think that actually trying to examine that stuff every now and again and go is this really what I want to do on all sorts of levels is this the job I want to do is this the relationship I want to be in is this the the city I want to live in is is this the the hobby that I want to have not 
the baggage, you know, I've been doing it for X number of years, I've amassed such and such a collection. Right now, do I want to sell it all up? Do I want to walk away? Do I want to stop doing this job? And over London Bridge, I decided I wanted to carry on doing it. And every now and again, particularly when I'm going over London Bridge, um, (laughs) I have another little think and try and decide. The thing that is really true is if I'm not doing it, it's not that I'm not happy, it's that I am less myself. Right. And I can put it off and I can delay it. And um, I I, I enjoy office work and I enjoy looking after my kid. I really enjoy looking after my kid. That's that's a totally different thing. But to do something where I didn't have something performative coming up. Yeah. This year has been great because I have pantomime already booked. I've had pantomime booked for about three or four months. I know that I've got a funny, silly job, stupid hats, telling jokes. Right in my future and so I can relax because I know that something is there as soon as I arrive on the first day I will start worrying I'll start being myself but I will also start worrying is this the last time I get to do this will I ever get another chance the podcast really helps that because we have we've found an audience inexplicably who think it's (laughs) as bad an idea as we do it's less that I've chosen to do it or who made me choose it or how I chose it and more choosing not to do it is the wrong thing at the moment. And I don't assume that that will be true forever. And I don't assume that it will last a fixed length of time. But at the moment, I'm doing all, I'm doing all right. I'm doing better than average. I don't work much, but I work. Um, and I think it would be a real shame to, to stop. Right. But it is something that I think about. It is something well, that... Well, it is... Whatever kind of creative pursuit you go into, it is, like, you are always grappling with... This is... There are things about this that are p- kind of part of who I am, but there's also... How long am I going to keep on pushing? Because it's always a push. Yeah. You can't just... Like, you can't relax into your life because mm. you have to look... Or you can, maybe. Yeah you get to a certain point but certainly what I've found is you can't you're always thinking like basically what you said of is this the last time I get to do this do I have it in me to keep on pushing to keep trying this new like to try new avenues as well to try if what you're doing isn't working to do you try a different direction yeah in the arts I find that to be also quite complicated because you know you'll know this slightly yourself because you do a couple of different things mm. you, you you make music and you act like it's not like you go oh I'll just I'll sidestep to a different part of the arts and that would be like you still have to learn a new skill each time you each time you step you, you get yeah. transferable stuff that Absolutely. you can pull yeah. over with you and that's great but it's not like and also you start further back if, yeah. you, if you do go into a different branch you go oh I'm going to try and be a podcaster like I did years and years yeah. ago you go right, right but I'm like much further back as a podcaster well, than but, I am as so, so whatever but, I was doing but, that wasn't successful but here's the thing and and I think that this is also really important for me anyway it's really important as part of that conversation with yourself or with other people yeah. is that there are lots of pros and cons about all sorts of big decisions and I think there is a sense particularly in creative stuff where you link yourself Mm. to the pros and cons and to the context right. there's a um, there's a there's a, a lovely uh, thought experiment which anyone who's ever met me will hate me doing where i ask you dave i'll get you some ice cream which which, which would you like vanilla or chocolate and you answer uh, chocolate okay and then i say why would you choose chocolate 
because uh, I don't like vanilla ice okay. cream. Okay. <laughs> and so then I suggest to you that that is you giving your dislike of vanilla control and power over your decision-making process. Right. So if you were to acknowledge that and set it aside, not that you always want to do that, but if you were to give yourself permission to go, oh, I don't like vanilla, but let's set that aside, let's set that preconception, let's set that assumption or that, that context aside. If you were to choose vanilla or chocolate, what would you choose and why would you choose it? I mean, I don't, I don't know how to do that. It's really difficult, <laughs> absolutely. And there's, and it sort of comes back to where we started in the conversation, where the, the, in this thought experiment, the suggestion is you need to be in a position where every now and again you say, I'm going to choose chocolate. And the person says, why are you going to choose chocolate? And you say, because I'm going to choose chocolate. And I don't need the permission of my preferences of flavour, and I don't need the permission of how many years I've spent... Uh, building up a, a skill set or my fear of dropping down a ladder and that kind of thing. Yeah. Every now and again, you have to, it's useful, it can be useful yeah, to be yeah, able yeah. to say, I'm going to do this and I don't need to justify it, I am going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really, uh, I, and for me, with all of these things, that's, to do, that's sort of to do with confidence, where we started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, it's, it, it gives you an immense amount of power over these big decisions because it's not like you don't you want to ignore the pros and cons of any decision but you don't want to be ruled by them as well right 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 so so that's and i can definitely be ruled but and that, i think mm, yeah that's a very familiar kind of experience for many of us is like mm. is being ruled by pros and cons because your identity is tied then, up with them and like when you get really obsessed with pros and cons then you don't do anything yeah and then you're like, you know, then you're like Hamlet, which is, you know, when I was a teenager, I hated Hamlet, but then I realised I was kind of like him, and that's kind of why, I, why I hated him because he yeah. didn't make any decisions. But like, you know, yeah, you don't a make any, and a lack of decision is a decision in itself, itself. where you go, oh, instead of making exactly. decisions, I want to sit with all these which pros and cons and mull them. Yeah, which is why I used to get annoyed with Hamlet because yeah. I'm like, you've caused all these people oh, to yeah. die. He's a massive. You dick. haven't done anything. Um, Not enough productions <laughs> of Hamlet include. Oh, you're a massive dick in yeah, the subtext. They should. I feel. They should. Um, and. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so you right. So you started off as um, a singer mm -hmm. as a child. Yeah. How did you feel when your voice changed? It happened very gradually. When you use your voice in that sort of way, you tend to find that it doesn't break; it slides down. And I went from a boy soprano to sort of a baritone. But a lot of the same principles of singing are there and I play a bit of brass so there's an awful lot of the same mechanics as well I did a bit of martial arts the breathing the energy the sort of like the the, the diaphragm as it were right. you know sort of the, all of those core muscles uh, all have use and power in and, and uh, give you facility in all of these things right. so it wasn't a traumatic thing and uh, for a little while after for a long time after I still had a sense of yeah I can sing whatever you want that's fine it's getting a bit harder now because I don't do it very often but um, but no, it wasn't a traumatic thing. No. Interesting. And another thing that you're in, interested in, in within the world of the arts is comics, right? I am a crazy, crazy comic nut. Um, <laughs> I, I find it utterly fascinating. I find the content fascinating, both in the the mainstream superheroes stuff and how that bleeds into or has bled into the uh, the mainstream of you know action filmmaking. Right. I also find the medium itself totally hypnotic. There's a wonderful book, overly quoted these days, very much about comics but also about art in general which is called uh, Understanding Comics by, by Scott, Scott McLeod. McLeod 
And there's some bits in that book which are really, really relevant to the way that comics functions, the sequential art, the idea that there are two images next to each other and they are static and they are separate and they are uh, frozen in time. And the reader looks at those two images and he gives the comic movement. He draws relationships between the two images. He creates motion out of similarities and dissimilarities and inevitably construct a narrative. The examples that McLeod gives uh, are things like baseball pitcher winding up and then uh, a night sky and then a planet exploding. And you can't help but go, God, where where in the, the darkened city did the baseball hit to blow up the planet? Like it's right. really, or, you know, you project right, onto things right, and, right. and the complicity. But also it applies to all sorts of things in art in general. Um, uh, the complicity in theatre where, you know, uh, I, I say I'm going to go off and slay the giant now and I turn and I walk off stage and there's a sound effect or a roar and I scream and a puff of smoke comes out right. and everyone laughs. The dragon isn't anywhere, but everyone knows exactly what has happened. Right. And everyone knows whether it's serious or funny, depending on how I scream and how big the puff of smoke is and how people react. There's no dragon. It's much easier to do someone being eaten alive by a dragon on stage than it is, say, to get someone to make a cup of tea on stage. Like these, these big things, because we understand these relationships. Also, Captain America punching people is really fun. So, so it's, it's, it, comic, comics are something that I have a... a <laughs> I, mean, I get really excited. About. I mean, comics are. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kind of comic fan too. And like, like you say, I'm. I like you know the arty stuff and the mainstream pulp stuff. And like, mm. and like, I read a lot of it quite late in like, like when I was when I just finished university, I worked started working in libraries. You could take out. To, you know, up to a hundred items out yeah. at that time. The perks were good back then. <laughs> These days, libraries are being closed down. Yeah. Then you could take out a hundred items, um, which included, you know, obviously DVDs, etc. But it meant that I was like, right, I can literally order any comic I've ever wanted to read. And yeah. like, I kind of went through loads of. I, I read all of the Scott McCloud books, but also other books about comics, and like made lists of all of the most influential comics and yeah. the, the different the different periods of superheroes. <laughs> you know. Like, like I wasn't just going high art on it, you know. Over a few years, intensively, that was all I yeah. all I read was comics because you know they're brilliant for commuting. They're really you you can burn through comics yeah. real quick, and you can stop. Uh, there there are natural chapter breaks right. built into them so often. My my girlfriend's doing jury service at the moment, and today she um, she said, "Oh, I want something to." She's she's not on a case today, so there's a lot of waiting. Uh, she's taken two hardcovers of Saga, the uh, oh, the Brian right. K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples comic, right. um, because there's a natural break every five minutes, so it doesn't feel like a novel where longer chapters or she's reading a series of novels, so which are harder yeah. to build up momentum with and that kind of thing. I think they're I think they're fascinating, and I do think that at the moment we're in an incredible renaissance is the wrong word but there's there's a broadening out of what what is being produced and uh, the quality of uh, what is being produced mm-hmm. and the ability for creative people to both self publish like web comics have had some really extraordinary success stories independent publishing both on a very small scale self published stuff but also things like the walking dead which, um, you know, the first issue sold uh, something like 3,000 copies, 4,000 copies, and is now a multimedia empire that Robert Kirkman, you know, 
gives him license and permission to do all sorts of extraordinary things. And and just, well, going back to uh, people choosing the paper stock, like the object of comics are an incredibly beautiful thing the the monthly issues and the big hardcover editions and right. online digital comics it's 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 an explosion in potential and the big studios are mining all the ip for not just the avengers films but also the, the hellboy series of comics which again is one guy mike mignola who's uh, been producing those comics for the last 20 25 years and uh made two films with Guillermo del Toro and there's a new film that's being cast at the moment and lots of interesting stuff going on with that. It's TV shows are being touted, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And there's decades of it waiting to be discovered either by multimedia or by someone going, Oh, what, what, what was this? Um, what was, you know, big names like, you know, Watchmen or what was American Flag, right. you know, that Chaykin built, uh, did in I the mean, 80s? I feel like now we're at the point as well where it's like everybody's discovering all the things that I disco- that I discovered ages ago. Like, like, so, like, <laughs> you, you were way ahead I'm of like us all, were you, Dave? <laughs> comics hipster. But, like, but, 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 where, but where we're at now is that, you know, when I hear a new thing is being adapted, I'm like excited and scared each time. Yeah. Because, because like, like with anything, when you adapt a thing, like I haven't seen the Preacher series yet no neither have I I'd um, like to I hear there's lots of differences and I'm yeah. not necessarily against that but like I've always wanted to make that series so the problem is that like what, what I find with comics is like I hear that like why the last man they're going to make into a yeah, thing potential. at some point soon I love that I've always wanted to make that I hoped that it would stay off people's radars enough <laughs> for long enough that I could like suggest it in you know in the right circumstance and make it but also the, the thing I find kind of a bit bamboozling about comics and their transition from comics to small screen yeah, or big yeah. screen is that often what happens is they go there's a comic let's make it into a film and I'm like why aren't you making them into TV series and I'm not saying there aren't like no. I've just just finished watching The Defenders I'm uh, I'm, I'm down with, you're ahead of me on that I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm down with TV series uh, the, 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 all of the TV well not all of them but a lot of the ones that are being made but it, I do sort of feel like these big kind of multi crossover like what they're trying to do with yeah. currently with the Avengers or with the Justice League movie yeah. like that's the better suited for a TV series often I think yeah. I haven't got the it's harder it's it's harder to get to the depth of character in a, a big blockbuster crossover Avengers movie because you just it just becomes a like let's see this character let's see this character let's, maybe it's like, I'm not saying that like again I love no 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 I, I, no I understand I understand the Marvel cin- cinematic universe I mean I love Thor um, and I love Iron Man 3 there's, there's some that I really yeah. love I feel like cinema is almost a restriction, even though it's what's making them popular, it's what's making them so successful. Yeah. But I'm like, creatively, I want to see these as, as, as yeah, like a comic. Because when you get a, a trade paperback of a comic, mm-hmm. that's a series, basically. That's, each one feels well, like a TV series. To it me. depends. I get the, the next series, the next series, the next series. I yeah. think it depends. I think that the, 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 the two sets of things that you're talking about are, um, there's actually a division within them. Right, um, that's true too. Thor and Iron Man are characters who have had big changes uh, wrought in them. There's some uh, some really interesting stuff being done in both books at the moment uh, yeah, yeah, as they're being released. But they are fundamentally perpetually second act. Iron Man had an accident that meant he had to wear a suit of armour and now he is trying to continue his life 
as that person. Thor is um, a god who is perpetually trying to get the approval of his father. None of these things are easily resolvable. Spider-Man will never bring his Uncle Ben back. Batman will never bring his parents back. Superman can't rebuild Krypton. All of these things. And and yes, they get close to them and there's stories where they go back in time, blah, 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 blah. But that's the second act structure. Things like Preacher, things like Why the Last Man, my favourite series, Scalped, are novels in the same way that The Wire... Um, right. or The Sopranos, or I haven't watched Breaking Bad yet, that's on my list, but they they are have beginning, middle, end. And there's a lot of middle, but there is an end point, if not conceived of, then at least aimed for, unlike CSI Miami, which is, you know, oh, here's a team of people, and this week they're doing this, and right. this week they're right, doing right, this. Right. The film stuff I find fascinating because they are managing in a really surprisingly successful way both to generate reasonably high quality content both in terms of writing and acting and production and that kind of thing but also i buy the second act the perpetual second act the defenders i know isn't going to resolve those stories any more than i believe daredevil season four will or at man two will i've got the character set up i've got the world set up this second act as far as i'm concerned can roll for a Good time longer. That's I don't. True. I don't yeah. need resolution any more than I need, you know, Captain America to finally you. defeat, you know, all concepts of no, fascism no. throughout, you know, the world. <laughs> like that's his perpetual second act. But I mean, I agree, and I, I, I you know, I, I agree with you on that too. And also, I, there are things I like about the way mm. they're linking. I've just recently seen the Spider-Man movie, the new, the new yeah, Spider-Man movie. It's great. It's so far really ahead of you. It's really good. <laughs> but 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 also, it it plays interestingly with the other films. Like it, there's interesting crossovers. So I'm not going to spoil it, but I, there's interesting crossovers. Yeah. Um, that are happening, and I think a lot of them are doing that. There are there are. It's very effectively being done. But but another part of comics, I mean, apart from like now, now m- most people know comics first through the films, yes, yeah. uh, or, or whatever. But that's not how it's always been. The other thing that they are is they're works of art in themselves. Yeah. And something you said to me when we were sort of setting up before I turned the the mic on is that you kind of going more towards like we were talking about DVDs and 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 c- CDs and stuff yeah. like that, and it, you, we were saying like you chuck those out because the technology moves on. Everything is streaming, everything but, is right. digital, yeah. But with, with comics, you've been going back the other way and going yeah. more to the physical pieces of artwork, right? Yeah, there's, uh, the, the, the online digital comics are really good. They're the same price, day and date release. Um, you can get lots of great offers, and I have a bunch of digital comics. But just the other day, we're recording this on, what is it, the 29th of... August. Uh, August 2017. Uh, yesterday was Jack Kirby's 100th birthday, and I saw that they have generated uh, that that a company called IDW has gone and found a whole load of Jack Kirby art. Anyone who doesn't know, Jack Kirby created all of these characters. He created, I mean, he didn't create Thor. Thor was around a few years before him. Um, but most but of the characters... Most of them. Know. There's an argument. I mean, he created all the Avengers. He created the X-Men. He created the Fantastic Four. He created a bunch of the characters that you're going to see in the DC movies. There's arguments to say that he was uh, involved in creating the costume for Spider-Man. Everything that is hugely popular now, you owe to Jack Kirby. Um, and it was his 100th birthday, or he passed away a long time ago, but um, there's a, a gigantic 
edition, I'm gesturing with my hands, but this isn't relevant for you, uh, where they have taken, found copies of the original artwork and they have scanned them in at high resolution, full colour, and printed them, I think in this one, uh, actually larger than original size. And so you get that sense of the original art and all of the scratchings out and the notes around the margins and where copy decks was put on in order to alter the thing. And, you know, little fragments of pencil art that the inker has gone over. And it's huge and it's monumental and it's just so exciting to me because it is not in the same way that original art would be although and and a lot of that is incredibly expensive now even by uh even modern artists can sell a single page of comics art for thousands of dollars but it brings for me it brings me close to the genesis of a lot of these incredible imaginative spaces um because all of these things, and, and in fact, the theme that I think we've been talking about in all of these conversations, whether it's to do with music or theatre or comics, is that, or podcasts, is that the process of creation, the process of seeking something and finding a way to put your work out, but also yourself out in a way that makes an impact on the world, requires a real engagement with the process rather than the finished product. Um, And the process of of building these comics pages and generating these mad ideas. Look look at some Jack Kirby comics. No, I mean, he's brilliant. There's just so much imagination spilling out of the head of this, you know, this (laughs) old Jewish guy who, you know, served in the war and, and, and came back home and created incredible science fiction science fantasy space opera stuff before anyone else was you know thinking about it and and is is now being adapted into it only now is the technology catching up with his imagination to present these things in a way that does them justice and these these books this kirby book in particular it's a connection to that there's there's a way of seeing not just the finished product because you can get beautiful reproductions of them and cleans up the lines and makes all the colouring you know pristine and flat but you see the way that he was throwing this stuff onto the page and making things up and sketching things that he would put a little note to Stan Lee going I think this guy should maybe be around Galactus he's on a I put him on a surfboard we can talk about it you know and and other people taking it and turning I just it's just if you could see me waving my hands around. It's a really, it's a really extraordinary thing, and something like all of this stuff that I aspire to to getting close to in anything that I produce. I feel like in audio form, people can hear. Like it's, it's, I always think, like when I have expressive guests, good, like because people do hear those expressions. Uh, like it, it does come across the relationship uh, to the mic as I go forward and exactly, I go back exactly, and I exactly. go forward. Yeah. But also to yourself, you know, your diaphragm opens up, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, like and and the interesting thing about. Stan Lee and and Jack Kirby is like that both of them were important in different ways to the creation of those characters and you can say and it's been said and there are criticisms that can be made of of Stan Lee but that said you know to one side it's a great collaboration uh, that happened well it wasn't necessarily it wasn't great for, for Jack. It wasn't good for Jack. <laughs> no, and that's the history of collaboration in the arts is is that sometimes brilliant collaborations happen and one person comes out with them yeah. with all the money. Absolutely. Uh, or all the acclaim or whatever. So I'm not I'm certainly not saying No, 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 I'm saying that. But 
like that's an interesting moment in comics as well like that Stanley was draw like the the pictures were there already and he was working out the words to put in yeah. uh, which is different from how it happens like Alan Moore writes scripts yeah. I've read those scripts they're incredibly detailed they're terrifying. I wouldn't want to be an artist working for Alan Moore or working with Alan Moore yeah. or maybe for that yeah. might be a bit more appropriate <laughs> before I ask you the last question something that you when we were setting up the mic you sort of said to me is that your your dad wasn't born too far away from yeah. this flat and we're in Leytonstone for anyone who wants to stalk me Please don't stalk me. Um, yeah, no, well, uh, it's, it, it was funny. I've, I don't think I've ever come to Leytonstone on the Tube, but we used to drive up here. I was born in London. I grew up in around Kilburn, but my uh, my grandparents on my dad's side lived and worked uh, around Leytonstone, uh, probably about 15 minutes walk from here, Bulwer Road. It was just a, it was just a funny feeling, really, you know, coming coming in and recognising occasional corners and and thinking about my, my granddad passed away um what must it be now 15 years ago something like that uh, my grandmother uh suffered with alzheimer's for a number of years before that um the final years of my grandfather's life were really interesting and really inspiring in an awful lot of ways they were both uh, insurance brokers um they had an office out the back of their house um, my dad, as I said, was a classical musician, is a classical musician. And so they they created this n- nurturing environment where they... I don't, it's not that they didn't understand it, but there was definitely a sense of giving support, if not permission, to um, someone who uh, went to university, studied mathematics at Cambridge, and then decided he wanted to blow down a clarinet for the rest of his life. <laughs> and them going, yeah, fine, whatever, you can do that and we'll support you and we'll pay the fees the deal is you have to do that for your child as well so I am living the support and having done a degree and then deciding to train as an actor I needed some support (laughs) my privilege is showing but um but it's privilege that was built and given permission by my grandparents and coming back to their um neck of the woods and uh thinking about the the times my my granddad put me up, and um, I think the last time I saw him, I was staying at his house, having been to see a Ben Fold's Divine Comedy double header good, somewhere. Good gig. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, and I stayed with him, and then uh, next morning he woke me up with a cup of tea at about six a.m. and I was like, oh, thanks, Arthur, that's really good. Um, <laughs> uh, and he died a little while after that. Um, he fell ill after going to his brother's funeral um but he was kind of an extraordinary guy they'd saved money to um they worked through to their 70s and they'd saved money to go and do some great stuff together um to around the world and and you know spend it yeah Yeah, exactly and shortly after they or around the time when they were retiring uh my grandmother uh, got alzheimer's sharp alzheimer's and so the whole thing sort of fell apart um and she was in a home for a long time and that was a really uh that was really upsetting for as as always is for sure um and after she passed away he really grabbed life and did some stuff he decided that you know he wanted to spend some of this money that he'd worked for and he got really connected to the internet he he used to he was part of a, a mailing list called the elders 
which was uh, a, a group of people from all around the world, mostly slightly older, but um, lots of people from America, a discussion group from, you know, sort of like mailing list days. Right, right. Uh, without really a topic in mind, but, you know, they'd say happy birthday to each other and they talk about religion and politics and my, my granddad would say, oh, load of bloody rubbish. Um, and he'd have arguments with, you know, fundamentalist Christians in the US and had a great time with that. But then he also, he also invited a load of them over. He said, I've got this, this money um, and a lot of you are quite interested in London. I don't live far. It, he, he claimed that his house, I think his house, either the, the Greenwich Mean Line passed through it or at least around the corner from it. Right. So he said, why don't you come over? I'll pay half the tickets. Um, if you want to come over, you pay wow. the other half. Nice. You can stay in my house. I've got a big house. We can, you know, wander around London. And they did. Um, and I don't think... He, I mean, I feel like he was around before the term silver surfer in the internet <laughs> term right. uh, came about. But he he was a... There are all sorts of things that I think about to do with my, my granddad really often. Um, and ways that I feel like my dad is a bit turning into him and I'm a bit turning into my dad and so I'm a little bit turning into my granddad. And then you've got a child too, so that makes you be aware of yourself as a father too, in this history of fathers. Yeah. Kind of going down the line, I guess. He would have loved... My daughter's called Pepper and my granddad Arthur would have loved Pepper, I reckon. He was... I want to to tell just a couple of quick stories before we wrap up. Um, uh, He started to lose his hearing just before he went. um, uh, And... He 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 would take ownership actually of of that thing. He he loved Chinese food, and so he said, "Well, I, uh, for my birthday, I want to go out to a Chinese restaurant, but I can't hear when you're all talking, and it's too noisy, and the hearing aid won't deal with it. So what I want to do is I want to go, and I'm going to turn my hearing aid off, and I don't want anyone to talk to me. <laughs> and then we'll talk when we go home. Yeah. But I, I re- that's what I want to do. And we we I, I can't remember me or somebody got him the first Harry Potter book for Christmas. He came up to where my folks live now in Oxford. And uh, he gave it a try, and then he just sat on the sofa for two days and he read it all. At the end, he said, "Yeah, that's good." And and there's there's something there's something really inspiring about someone born in the East End of London. He was a conscientious objector, which I don't know enough about, otherwise I would have brought it up. But um, his parent, his um, his dad was a policeman. I think two generations above that were also all, all East End coppers. And he, you know, transitioned into this, you know, quite middle class, you know, insurance brokerage job. And his son became a, um, a classical musician. And uh, my aunt Sue uh, has worked in fashion all her life. And he's a he bought a BSA motorbike. And the first thing he did was he took it out to the garden and took it apart and then put it back together again. So he knew knew how it worked. So it was kind of a. I, I think about my granddad a lot, and I, uh, I think of him as being kind of an extraordinary guy in the direction of various things that I think are important about passing things on to your children and engaging with the world and saying yes to things. You know, people want to come over, do it, and engaging with people and working out how things work. Um, so coming back to Leighton Stone was uh, just something that brought that up in my head. 
Well, I'm very pleased to have kind of by accident uh, been the been partially responsible for those memories. Yeah, and it's Thank great. That it's, I'm glad that you had that experience. I mean, it, it's really interesting to me, like hearing you talk about that as, as well, because so my dad's 93, right, and he lives round the corner. All right. Um, was he born in this area? He wasn't. He wasn't. He was born. Uh, I think he was born in Bristol. Okay. But he he he, he grew up in parts of London, and then he went to the war to war, and then he's been all over. But uh, Lane Stone's been quite kind of significant generally in my family's life. Like my sister has lived here for most of most of my life, so yeah. like I I can't remember a time when I didn't go on family holidays to Lane Stone. But now I live here for yeah. for over like, for ten years or some over ten years probably. Yeah. And so like it's it's I'm seeing my dad kind of become an old, old properly old person yes. because for years. It sounds like he was a little bit like aspects of what you were talking about, your granddad of like kind of sort of still being kind of like interesting and excited by life and all of those things uh, far longer than people expect. Yes. But he's also kind of he's got mild dementia now. So he's going towards where your your grandmother was yeah. as well. So it's a it's a complicated emotional time for me to be Very thinking different. about age and old people and 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 uh how young people become those old people yeah. as well. Like, I'm very super aware. Like, cause all my life, I've expected my dad to die any time because when I was six, he had a heart attack. And when I was 15, he had uh, a quadruple heart bypass. And now I'm, like, 35, and he's, like, not... Like, so now, yeah. now, now it's gone the other way. Now I'm like, how, how come he's still he's alive? He's like, forever, clearly. Yeah. That's... Well, that's how I started to feel yeah. before he sort of went into this kind of dip in physical terms. And then I'm like, no, now I know he's not going to live forever. And actually, maybe living forever is a it's not what I would want for no. him or me to see that either. No, of course. Like, it's like, that's the thing. You want a long life, but you want a long, healthy life. Yeah. But what I what I thought was really nice in, when you were talking about your granddad is the, the, him turning off his hearing aids, right? Yeah. And I, that's something that you know may, maybe now it's less less relevant to my dad's kind of life uh, to do things like this. But certainly, I've, I've no maybe it still is. Like so, what I think is great about that story is I wish my dad could do that. Like I wish my dad didn't feel he had to please other people. That's yeah. a real part of who he is, and that's yeah. one of the things that made him a great dad. Don't get me wrong. Pleasing other people when that's your children is great. <laughs> great. Uh, is great. But, like, it, it's definitely this thing of, like, wanting to, like, appear to be able to hear more than he can. Like, he'll bluff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm, it's really good to hear, like, the, the, the you know, there are people who are like, no, fuck it. I'm going to switch off my hearing I aids. And, and I, I wish he could do that. Like, I wish he would, he could feel socially co- confident enough to, to, to show his weakness, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that's great. Or great just, quality. Just the, the situation. I think. That, yeah. I think that I mean, there's weakness a lot of, is the wrong word. No, absolutely. But that, that's that's exactly. It's it's exactly the fact that not you think of it as a weakness, but that it Society is perceived sees as, it as a weakness. As well. yeah. You know, and yeah. and you know, I shave all my hair off because I don't want to be seen as a guy who's kidding himself about how much he has up on top. Right. And there's there's definitely you know you you. I, I, I'm not afraid of mentioning that my handshake right, uh, right, right. initially, if that's an appropriate thing, you need to own all of this stuff. Right, not need to, but it, it's it makes helpful you, for you and other people if it's you do. Empowering, it yeah, makes absolutely. it powerful. You know, I think that that I mean confidence again, but <laughs> the and being in the moment, you know. <laughs> fucking actors they always think that you know they've got some deep and meaningful truth just silly hats and they trip over the furniture but 
there's things in this stuff. There's things in performance theories where, you know, all of our stuff is performance to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah. Everything that people generate, whether it's art or whether it's day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to go at it going, yeah, this is mine. This is this is who I am and this is what I'm... It's something to aspire to and right. something you hope for, right, right. for people around you. But it's interesting too because it's like all of those kind of things are things I might have said about my dad and still would say about my dad. They're all true. Like he, he has been true to himself in many ways. Sure. But the thing is when people get older, that's when you start to see the areas that they've been hiding yeah. that they can't hide anymore. And that's when you start going, oh, I see. Like, you know, he, he, he always has to pay for everything because there's a kind of provider element yeah. to that that I wasn't getting when he was just a happy guy in a pub buying the rounds. Yeah, of course. You know, it's interesting seeing those kind of the masks uh, slip a little bit as people kind of become older, I think. Well, and also ways. as we get better at recognising, right. as we grow older, we see people's right. masks. Right, right, right. You know, and we, and, and like you said about Hamlet, the things that you recognise in other people, in yourself, are the things which disturb you the most, whether they irritate you or you have concern for them. Um, I live in perpetual fear of taking on, becoming, you know, the most frustrating element of my father mm-hmm. and that my daughter will become the most frustrating and worrying element of me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always had that with my mum. Like, I don't want to become the most, the worst elements of my mum. But, 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 but getting older is partly making peace with that. Like going, well, they're elements of me, but are they necessarily bad? No. Like, they're not necessarily bad if you have... In fact, some of my greatest strengths probably come from my mum. Sure, sure. Um, Just being aware of know. them, perhaps, you know. Yes, and being absolutely. able to, like Very you say, important. you know, wanting to go to be able to go... Here it is. That's who I am. But also, maybe I don't want to do that today, or Absolutely. maybe I have control over whether I do it today or not. Well, also, I mean, I've I've always sort of thought like oh, I want to be like my dad, and I don't want to be like my mum. And now I find myself in a position where I'm like, I'm okay with some of the ways I'm like my mum, yeah. but also I don't want to be like some of the ways that my dad is. Uh, and so, actually, that's a much ba- more balanced position to be. Absolutely, in. absolutely. You um, just you just be you. You be you. <laughs> What's me though? Uh, and then that's where the existential crisis. Yeah, I don't think we've got time for that one. <laughs> so the last question that I ask everybody is: Do you have anything to plug? I do. Um, <laughs> uh, we have uh, the Song by Song podcast that myself and Martin do, which is uh, songbysongpodcast dot com. Or you can find us on Twitter at songbysongpod. I have the incredibly, incredibly innovative Twitter handle at Sam Pay, S A M P A Y, all one word. And I'm going to be uh, at the Key Theatre in Peterborough this Christmas in Sleeping Beauty. So any GBA uh, listeners in Peterborough, you should come along. Um, but what Song by Song also has a uh, a live show coming up at the London Podcast Festival. That's right. Uh, September the 14th, 9pm, uh, £9.50. But all of the information for that is um, on the website. We've got Helen Zaltzman joining us. We've got John Hodgman of... The Daily Show and Judge John Hodgman coming to discuss the first three songs from Rain Dogs with us. I should be in the audience if I get the comp. Uh, Dude, you should come along. For. Absolutely, no, come along. It'll be it'll be a fun evening, and uh, and yeah, we'd uh, we'd love to have you. Um, <laughs> but no, not really. I mean, you know, there's there's those things, but mostly I'm uh, I'm just bumbling along. I'm going to read some comics on the way home. <laughs> I've got no giant media empire. I've got no uh, long term. 
<laughs> I try not to plug myself. I really hate plugging myself, to be honest. Well, you've, so, you've done quite. I mean, you've had for someone who doesn't feel like they've got very much to plug. You've plugged a lot. I've said what I'm I doing. think. I think you've done well. <laughs> and the last thing I ask my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Well, it'd be my pleasure. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Dave. Thanks very much for having me, audience. Hopefully, I'll speak to you again soon. So, ta-ra. Bye, everyone. As Sam said, live Song by Song is happening tomorrow at King's Place, and I will be in the audience because I did get a ticket, so you can catch me there in the audience. I'll be around at the London Podcast Festival generally. I'll be around quite a lot of Saturday as well, and on Sunday at 4 o'clock, myself and previous GBA guest, Carla Marie Sweet are running a podcast maker workshop about personal storytelling. At the end of the episode, I touched on where my dad's at and how I've been thinking a lot about my dad. And based on that thinking, I've been putting together some kind of personal essays, I guess. I'm putting one of them out on Medium every Thursday for the next couple of months. I put the first piece out last week and I'm going to put the second piece out tomorrow. They're called Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. I'll put a link in the show notes and if you follow me on Twitter, Goosefat101, you'll be able to see there when the next one comes out. As well as making Getting Better Acquainted, I also co-produce and I guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast, The Family Tree. In order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like getting better acquainted on facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places but remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.